In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the arts of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And this week marks 60 years since the Second Vatican Council's Sacrosanctum Concilium. And this week we bring in a good friend of mine, Father Peter Williams. Welcome to the Catholic Toolbox. Thank you, George. Very happy to be here. Excellent. It's, it's, it's great to have you here. And for our listeners who don't know you, uh, your first time here on the Catholic Toolbox, uh, a bit about you and uh, some of the work that you do, some of the tremendous work around the Diocese of Parramatta as well, especially. Sure, sure. Uh, thanks, George. Uh, look, uh, I suppose to uh, provide a brief, um, a brief summation, uh, I'm currently the Vicar General Moderator of the Curia in the Diocese of Parramatta. But prior to that, I spent a year working for the Bishops' Conference because for 10 years I was the Executive Secretary okay. of the Bishops' Commission for the Liturgy. Uh, so that was a post that I began in, uh, in the year 2000. Um, I, and the reason why I did that was because the previous two years I'd been working for the International Commission on English in the Liturgy uh, working on the new translation into English of the third Latin edition of the Roman Missal. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in that project. And also during that time, I uh, worked uh, for um, uh, Cardinal Pell because I was the director of liturgy for World Youth Day in Sydney in 2008. So um, it was just as well I was much younger than George because I had the, the energy to be able to do multiple, I guess you'd say it was multitasking uh, yeah. during that period of 2000 to 2011. And then in 2011, Bishop Anthony Fisher, who was then Bishop of Parramatta said, I think the national and international churches had their fair share of you and it's time to come back to uh, focus on the diocese. So he then appointed me as uh, uh, Vicar General in uh, 2011. So that's uh, that's briefly the story. Mm. I mean, and uh, you do some great work at the Catholic Institute of Sydney um, uh, in the yes, area. Of yes, the I've been uh, I've been lecturing there in liturgy. Um, I, I actually can't remember now when I started, but it's a, a long time ago. It's certainly well over 10 years. Um, I've been lecturing there. I think I had one year off for a, a sort of a sabbatical. Uh, but um, I've just finished teaching first semester. Uh, uh, I've had a class of 15 students this semester, mainly seminarians, but not exclusively. Um, and then in second semester, I'll be teaching a half unit, which Notre Dame offers with CIS on the uh, subject of homiletics. So I'll be teaching mainly seminarians about the mysteries of preaching. <laughs> That's that's tremendous work uh, in the area of liturgy, which uh, brings us to our topic today, marking 60 years since the Vatican, uh, Second Vatican Council's decree on liturgy. And uh, we want to reflect about that today um, and, and the great legacy the Second Vatican Council left us in terms of liturgy. And we want to reflect on where we're at today as a church. And I think you have a tremendous perspective on that. And uh, if you'd enlighten us uh, with with what was what was actually achieved at the Second Vatican Council uh, on the decree of the sacred liturgy. 
Mm, thanks, George. Well, in order to do that, I think what I want to do is quote from a former teacher of mine at Catholic University of America mm -hmm. when I was studying there back in the mid-1990s. Uh, I encountered a wonderful uh, 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 liturgical scholar by the name of uh, Kevin Irwin. Kevin Irwin is a priest of the Diocese of New York. Uh, he's now what they refer to as a research professor uh, at the Australian Catholic University, which means he's not teaching, but he basically writes books. And uh, Monsignor Kevin Irwin's written a lot of books. Uh, but one of the books that he wrote in 2013 that he actually uh, sent me drafts of to be able to comment was a book called um, uh, The Liturgical Reform Sancrosanctum Concilium. And then the subtitle was uh, coming out of the actually confitior at mass it was quite clever. What we had done and what we had failed to do, which yeah. was a great subtext. Um, now, uh, as you know, recently I've just been in Perth leading the clergy conference over two weeks in the Archdiocese of Perth, and I took I took that same title from Kevin's book, which I acknowledge. Um, and uh, and I used that as the basis for my presentations to the clergy of the Archdiocese of Perth. So what I first did was look at Sancrosanctum Concilium, basically the main tenets of it, and then a number of the liturgical rites that were reformed, which priests would use on a weekly basis. And basically saying, well, here's what the expectations were but how have we measured up? How have we measured up? So in order to understand Sancrosanctum Concilium, we actually have to go back to the 19th century. And the reason why we have to do that is because that, that is when what is broadly known as the liturgical movement began in Europe in the 19th century. And it was driven by three factors. The first factor was the um, was the re-founding of the Benedictine Abbey of Salem in France. Now, many of your subscribers will probably know about Salem mm -hmm. because it's the famous Benedictine Abbey that champions Gregorian chant. And when, when Salem was re-founded, one of the interests of those who re-founded Salem was to say, we need to get back to singing the chant of the church because the chant of the church is one of its great treasures. And so Salem specialised in the interpretation of the singing of Gregorian chant. So that's one strand that began in the 19th century. Yeah. The second strand that began in the 19th century came out of universities, largely in Germany, but not exclusively, where there was a rekindled interest in looking at ancient liturgical texts. So there was what we call a scholarly movement to say, let's go back and look at ancient manuscripts. <clears throat> let's go back and look at the way in which Christians of the second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth centuries worshipped. So there was an academic strand. The third strand came out of Belgium and that also was driven by Benedictines. And, and that was built around, of all things, which fascinates many people to know, that that was the time at which people were beginning to get interested in what we call Catholic social action. In other words, saying, how does my faith impact on the questions of justice within the society in which I live? And one of the drivers of that movement in social action said, well, one of the things that's going to help drive people's connection of faith in life is going to be the way they worship. So what can we do to make the liturgy more alive for people who are interested in being socially active in the world? So you've got the Belgians, the Germans and the French, and that gave rise to the liturgical movement and the first papal uh, documentation that we have uh, that addresses that issue comes from the pen of Pope uh, Pius X. Yeah. 
Now, St. Pius X in 1903 issued a very important motu proprio, which is one of those Latin documents that comes out of the Vatican, that has a particular level of authority to it. Mm. So it's not quite an encyclical. So there are three levels. There's an instruction, a motu proprio, and an encyclical. encyclical. So it fits in the middle in terms of hierarchy of importance. And this particular document, which had the Latin title Trialis Solicitudini, is the first time where we hear the Holy See talk about full conscious participation in the liturgy. What was St. Pius X referring to? He wanted ordinary Catholics coming to Mass to learn how to sing simple Gregorian chant. And, and he wanted people to be able to know the simple chant settings of the Mass so that when they came to Mass, they could participate by singing the Kyrie and the Gloria and the Sanctus and the, yeah. the Agnus. And it was from that movement that we gave a gradual building up of interest from the 19th century, particularly through uh, Pius X and then also Pius XII, uh, who wrote a number of important documents on the subject of the liturgy and reformed the rite of Holy Week um, in the mid-1950s. And that then all led to what happened in 1963 with the passing of the Constitution. So in other words, what I'm trying to say to you, George, is, and many people misunderstand this, that the, the, the call for the reform of the liturgy of the Catholic Church was not a thought bubble that came out of the Second Vatican Council. Yep. There had, in fact, been a movement to institute some sort of reform that would began way back in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And we did see the reform of the rites of Holy Week by Pius XII. Yeah. Well, before that. So... You're absolutely right. It wasn't just something that came out of the Second Vatican Council as just oh. a quick idea. So, so but but was the concept of of active participation uh, already being discussed before the Council, and what would it actually? Oh yeah, mean? yeah. Well, as I said to you, Saint Pius X introduced that phrase into the Church, but he had it specified directly towards people being able to sing the Latin chant masses. Mm -hmm. So that was what he was driving at. So that phrase, full conscious acti uh, uh, active participation, which appears in section 14 of Sacrosanctum Concilium, was not original to a Sacrosanctum Concilium. It, it, its origins go back to that motu proprio of St. Pius X because that was where it was first expressed. Yep. Exactly, mm. exactly. And, um, and, and, so, and, and so the mindset of re reforming the liturgy began before the council. And yep. once we got to the Second Vatican Council and on this de very day, um, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium the, um, uh, was, was released, what were the intentions behind the council fathers in releasing uh, this document, um, yeah. looking to the future. I think that's that's yeah. what most people want to understand. Um, yeah, sure. Because they read it, they may get different impressions about it, they may not know how to interpret it. What were their intentions? Well, I think their intentions were to say there was a general mood in, amongst the council fathers that society in the 1960s was rapidly changing and that the church needed to, I suppose, look at itself again and say, what is the most effective way in which we can communicate the truth of the Gospels? How are we going to keep the Catholic faithful engaged in their faith, given that there are so many external assaults in terms of rampant secular secularization and, and a general shift away from uh, religious practice. And that was quite evident in the 1960s. Now, 
You had the benefit of being a young man, George. You weren't around in the 1960s, but I was. And I remember what that world was like uh, because I was then a teenager. Yeah. And you could, see, you could sense that there was a shift going on, particularly in the Western world. Um, so um, the, what the council fathers called for was nothing unusual because it was it was the same as what the council fathers had called for in Trent. Trent was responding to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. So when the council fathers at Trent gathered, what they were doing was preparing a defence of Catholic faith, Catholic liturgy, Catholic morals to ward off what had happened with the Protestant Reformation. And yep. what they did was to standardise the celebration of the liturgy, which resulted in the Missal of 1570 by Pius V. Mm -hmm. um, again, what a lot of people don't know is that prior to, prior to Trent, there had been considerable plurality in liturgical practice across Europe. Um, there was no single form of the celebration of mass. While the basic template of the Roman rite was observed, there were lots and lots and lots of local variations right across Europe. So depending on where you were in Europe, there would be what we call local usages. Okay. So what Trent did was to say, in order to present a unified face of the Catholic Church, given the assaults of Protestantism, we need to have a unified mass where everybody celebrates mass in the same way, no matter whether you're in Helsinki or whether you're in South America. It doesn't matter. Wherever you go throughout the Roman Catholic world, mass will look the same everywhere. And that was a great unifying feature that emerged out of Trent. Now, what happened in the 1960s was that the council fathers were faced with a different set of issues. As I've already mentioned, growing secularization, um, uh, shifts in people's levels of education. Um, there was a whole lot of stuff going on throughout the world. And what the council fathers said is, we need to revise the liturgy to make the liturgy clearer and simpler mm -hmm. in terms of both its celebration and the capacity of those who attended to understand and be involved in it. And that's precisely what was underpinning the reforms that are mandated in the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, you can see the parallel between Trent and the Second Vatican Council where yeah. Trent yeah. wanted to clear up the local variations yeah. of the Roman Rite and uh, and kept uh, uh, rites that were 200 years or older, like the Dominican Rite or the, uh, the yeah. Carthusian yeah. Rite. Yeah. Yeah. So they did and quite a good job with, with yeah. the Roman Rite it, itself. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that when you look at what Trent, Trent, Trent posed a number of questions that were also posed at the Second Vatican Council. And one of the questions that Trent looked at was whether or not the liturgy should be rendered in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. And it, in the 16th century, the fathers of Trent said, no, this is not the time to be going to local languages. We need to maintain the unity of the Roman rite by continued use of Latin. But when they looked at that same question in the 1960s, they then said, well, maybe the time has come for us to loosen that and to be able to consider yeah. having worship in vernacular languages. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was very interesting that a lot of the questions that came at Trent, when you read through, when you read through the decrees of Trent and the Council of Trent's documents, Many of the questions that were raised in Trent also came to be raised in the 1960s at the Second Vatican Council. 
But then they were looking at them through a different lens than what they were looking at in the 16th century. Okay. Uh, do you want to elaborate a bit more on that lens that they were looking at? What was the primary difference between well, the lens of Trent it, and Vatican II? Sure. Sure. The church in every age needs to respond to the conditions in which it finds itself. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church in the 16th century was facing a serious challenge by the spread of Protestantism in a number of different forms. Because, as you know, uh, Protestantism split. Mm -hmm. There was Luther, then, um, but that Calvin had a different view to Luther. Zwingli had a different mm -hmm. view to Calvin. Um, Knox had a different view. I mean, one of the things about Protestantism is that it's continued to split um, as, as since the 16th century. So now there would probably be hundreds of different forms of Protestantism around the world. Thousands. Yeah. Yeah, probably. We've got mainstream ones here in Australia, like like the Lutherans up here and the Uniting Church are here and the Anglicans are here. Mm -hmm. uh, but ostensibly, if you go to America, there's almost a, a, a shop front church on every corner, yeah. <laughs> as I experienced. As many um, as many yeah, as yeah. So um they were responding to an urgent need to reform the Catholic Church to make the church a bulwark in order to be able to defend itself against the onslaughts of what had taken place at the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. So there were very real conditions. And look, we've got to be honest. You know, the medieval church was in many respects in need of serious reform. There is no doubt that there was a laxity amongst the clergy. Uh, there were abuses financially. Yep. Um, uh, there were also um, uh, a, a lot of practices that bordered on being almost um, magic um, uh, rather than based on solid Catholic belief and practice. So. You know, there were a lot of wonderful things about the medieval church, and I'm a I'm a great I'm a great advocate of medievalism. Um, I studied at university, and I'm uh, I, I think it was a great, but but there was a downside. Yeah. So so Trent was needed. Right. Trent was needed, and in the same way, I think we look at the church in the 1960s, and we say to ourselves. The church that had basically remained rock solid for about 400 years since Trent, the council fathers thought it's not equipped to counter the modern world and, and we need to do some reform of it in order for the church to be better equipped to handle the world that's coming. Um, and, and that was why what, the first thing they turned their attention to was the way we worship, which is why the Constitution on the Liturgy was first. Now, it's interesting that it was because, you know, there's a Latin saying that uh, we often use in uh, liturgical circles, um, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief which then is the law of the way in which we live out our lives. <laughs> so I'm not surprised they started with the liturgy. Now, some people have said to me, do you think the liturgy document would have looked the same if it had come later in the council rather than first up? Well, mm -hmm. I can speculate about that. Um, what happens if Lumen Gentium had come first, the dogmatic constitution on the church? Um, or guardian at space had come before. I don't know. I can't answer that question. It's not the way it unfolded. Um, because some people would say that Sacrosanctum Concilium laid the groundwork for them what developed in both Lumen Gentium and guardian at space. Now, I wasn't at the council. I was a teenage boy. Um, uh, I Neither wasn't was there. I. <laughs> um, I knew it was happening. Uh, yeah. But... Um, 
we we could debate that all night, but it would be uh, it would be superfluous. Mm -hmm. I think what's important is that that the council fathers said we need to revise the liturgical rites to make them clearer and simpler, and that way it will encourage people to be actually engaged with the liturgy. And you see, George, prior to the reforms of the council, there many people who went to mass um, in the 1950s, some people had missiles and would follow the mass in their missiles. But the majority of Catholics who went to mass in Australia in the 1950s would not have missiles and they would engage in their own private devotions mm -hmm. whilst mass was being celebrated. Many people would play the rosary, other people would do other forms of devotion. Yep. Um, but they weren't actually really paying any attention to what the priest was doing when he was praying the mass. Yep. And that was why they called in section 14 of the constitution to say, we actually want people to be engaged with the liturgy itself because the people, as the as section 14 says, have a right by way of their baptism to participate in the offering of the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, so it was a culture of, uh, I think, people became somewhat disconnected uh, with uh, what was going on at mass, uh, yeah. you know, praying their rosaries and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah. did hear that from my the time of my grandmother that they that was yeah. somewhat the practice yeah. during. Yeah. Now look, can I did also say it would be quite wrong to suggest that people weren't spiritually nourished. You know, some people who are very aggressive reformers, for want of a better phrase, basically say, oh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the people were impoverished. Well, at one level, yes, they were, but another level, remember that, that generations and generations of Catholics were sustained even by coming to Mass and basically doing their own thing, but even by virtue of being present, was sufficient nourishment to keep them buoyed up in their faith. So I get a bit annoyed when people say, oh, you know, um, everybody was completely and utterly spiritually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's quite clear they they were not. That's that's a furphy. Of course they weren't. Yeah. Um, it's uh, not it as if people were coming to mass and yeah. saying their rosary had yeah. no clue what was going on. You know, yeah, of course they had a clue. Yeah. yeah, they did have a clue what was going on. The thing was that they were engaged in their own thing, but mm -hmm. they also knew what the mass was and what the priest was doing. So yeah. to suggest that they didn't know is mm -hmm. silly because of course they knew. So it wouldn't be like today's Latin Mass with many young families and many young people, including myself. We go with missiles and participate. Oh, yeah. But that's a very different. Oh, George, and that's a very the different. Chant yeah. and the polyphony yeah. and. <laughs> yeah, that's a very different. Yeah, because the people now who go to attend celebrations of the missile in 1962, they go with the intent of actually being engaged with that liturgy. So they take their missiles and they're, they're patently aware of what is happening. Mm -hmm. But congregations of Catholics in the 1950s in Australia, they weren't. They weren't. They went because it was part of their identity as Catholics and their obligation to go and hear Mass, which is the phrase that people use. I'm going to hear Mass. In other words, the priest is praying the Mass and I'm going to hear the priest pray the Mass. Mm -hmm. What so the we, Second Vatican yeah. Council called for was to say, no, you actually need to see yourself as being a participant. The priest, sure, has the pivotal role representing Christ in Persona Christi in the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice, but you are joined to that sacrifice by virtue of your baptism 
and your own self-offering. That is not an understanding that your average Catholic person would have had during the 1950s. Exactly. And let's proceed further with uh, the council. So they they produced the document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. There were some great sections, especially I love the section on sacred music, where yeah. it reaffirms yeah. Gregorian chant as a primary, yeah. um, has priority of place yeah. as yeah. Uh, as the, the official music of the Roman Rite. Yes. And the use of Latin as the primary uh, yeah. to have primary uh, place in the liturgy. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I think it was a terrific document. I think yeah. even the, let's say, if you look at the extreme traditionalists, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but uh, I, I think it is. But, uh, but the founder of the Society of St. Pius X himself signed on it. Um, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre on that particular document and I, I don't think there was any issue at that time uh, with the document. No. I think it's it's a quite no. sound document. But the, the issue of course came with how people interpreted the document yeah. and that was when I think it ran into difficulty in some yeah. parts of the world. Um, elaborate because, on that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, because what happened was that people were not sure how to implement the reform. And once people got the reformed liturgical books, they then in some places began to imagine that that gave them license mm -hmm. to be creative in how they celebrated the reformed rites. And that was when we get a whole lot of things going seriously wrong during the 1970s and the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, and that those excesses needed to be corrected and pulled back. And um, Pope John Paul II began that process uh, by a series of documents uh, that were published on correcting um, what we now refer to as liturgical abuses. And that was certainly followed up during the pontificate of Benedict XVI. So just to wind back, uh, Father, a little bit. So uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium was released um, and and was this a time where people received it and uh, began to just aggressively uh, do their own thing or well, uh, we get to the yeah. point of uh, uh, what kind of uh, and what kind of liturgical abuses did we face uh, at that time? Uh, look, I think, look, it's quite simply this, uh, George, and I say this when I go around the country giving the sorts of things I gave in Perth a week ago. Uh, there was a profound lack of proper liturgical catechesis. There was no catechetical program to help clergy and religious and other people understand what the implementation of the reform rights meant. And because there was this vacuum, people then thought, well, maybe it's up to me to make it up myself. Yep. And that was the fundamental mistake, um, was that because the reform was so, I guess we might say so significant, that there wasn't the accompanying, um, there wasn't the accompanying in-depth catechesis that should have taken place at the time. And that that's why we ended up, I think, with a lot of those terrible excesses of the 1970s and the 1980s. And slowly, we've been, I guess you might say, clawing our way back um, to try and bring the whole process back to what was probably the intent of those who were responsible for it. And we're, we're doing that slowly, but it's a slow process because, as you know, when you get a runaway train, it's very different, difficult to bring the train back under control. Um, uh, but happily, I'm here to tell you that I see signs that people are beginning to now realise that some of the things that ended up happening in the implementation of the reform were not at all what the reform wanted or required. 
but race, but basically they were actions that were probably well-meaning, but profoundly misguided. <laughs> so, I mean, reflecting on this, let's let's see the boat uh, towards um, what we can do to better improve our understanding of the Second Vatican Council's call um, yeah. in our age today, because. Oh. In the year 2023, we're 60 years out from the Second Vatican Council, especially yeah. this decree today. Yeah. Um, it's it's just phenomenal. Um, what what can so we do, Father Peter? Let's let's think about um, let's think about that phrase from the Council Constitution that everybody wants to quote, which which as I said, really emanated from Saint Pius X about full conscious and active participation. What does that mean? In terms of the celebration of the Mass, so let's just focus on the Mass. The, the first thing is that it means that those who come to the celebration of the Mass are reminded of the fact that the only reason why they're there is because they've been baptised. And what, what the Mass is, is the repeatable sacrament of initiation. Mm -hmm. There are three sacraments of initiation in the Catholic Church, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. Only one of those is repeatable. So in fact, every time you go to mass, what you are doing is you are reigniting your sacramental initiation into the faith mm -hmm. is what you're doing. Yeah. And you are joining yourself to the offering of Christ as he offers himself to the Father through your own sacrifice of your own life. So you, we join the sacrifice of our own lives to the sacrifice of Christ, which is offered by the priest. How can we then most effectively do that? Firstly, I think it's incumbent on all of us to make certain that when we come to the liturgy, that we actually do respond to those parts of the liturgy where the people are called to respond in the acclamations and responses. Mm -hmm. So often, George, when I celebrate Mass, I see large numbers of people who never open their mouths, never, ever say anything. Yep. Um, people are meant, the council meant that people would not be silent, but would take part of those parts in the mass to which they were given by the reform. That's the first thing. The second thing, which is something that's very important to me, is that we need to understand that we are in a sacred place where we are engaged in the worship of God. And that means that we need to be disposed in a reverential way in terms of our conduct when we're in a public place of worship. Regrettably, with, and this may be a peculiarity of Australian society, where people tend to the informal rather than the formal, there tends to be a very casual attitude by some people when they're in a church building where they'll chat to the people they've come to mass with where they don't show any disposition of reverence towards the fact that they're in a place dedicated to the worship of God. So one of the things that we need to do is that we need to make certain that we behave in a reverent way when we're in the building. The third factor, which is essential in the reformed liturgy, which, and this is often a responsibility of clergy who don't understand it, is that one of the great marks of the Roman rite is, is, is the provision for silence, for sacred silence in the yeah. rite. Now, 
that's more often the responsibility of the person who is the celebrant. But if they themselves have not been properly formed, they're not going to know about the importance of those sacred silences that occur throughout the liturgy. Yep. The other thing is that those who assist in the liturgy, and I'm talking about lay liturgical ministers, of altar servers, of readers, and so on, they also need to make certain that they have the proper disposition when they engage in those ministries. It's not enough for somebody who is designated as a reader at Mass to actually get up and read the reading without having read it through before and properly prepared it. I mean, it's... They, need, they need to take mm. their ministry seriously. Exactly. It's no good turning up. If you're, a, if you're serving at Mass, you're not going to be properly disposed if you arrive at two minutes before the Mass is due to begin and you're throwing on your alb or whatever it is you're wearing, um, at rushing around because you need preparation time. You should be there at least 15 minutes before a Mass begins so that you can have some quiet time in recollected prayer to assist you to prepare for whatever ministry it is that you're assisting within the Mass. The other thing that we also need to focus on is the quality of the music that we yep. use in the religion. Now, in a place like Parramatta at the cathedral, we're blessed <sighs> with with a, a extraordinary choir where the treasury of the church's music, both chant, polyphony, and good contemporary music, all gets and finds expression. But the majority of our parishes are reliant on amateur musicians of varying ability for whom they have little or no understanding of the church's patrimony in terms of music. Mm. And one of the biggest challenges that we've got is equipping ordinary musicians in their parishes yeah. to come to a knowledge of what is available and what people, in fact, should be singing. And that's a long-term project. And recently, uh, happily, the diocese employed someone in the Met team who's uh, the assistant uh, director of music at the cathedral uh, who is going around now, uh, that's Eric, who's going around running yeah. workshops around the diocese to upskill people who are responsible for liturgical music. Mm. Yeah, because it seems the current music climate, usually in each diocese, most dioceses, especially Parramatta, seems to be that the cathedral always sings the spectacular music, Gregorian chant, polyphony, and it's always just the Latin mass chaplaincy in whichever diocese that are the only ones singing Gregorian chant and perhaps yes. on rare yeah. occasions regular parishes but that's but that's a great um great deal yeah. of progress there to, to upscale yeah but we've, we've we've got a long way to go and we've got to recover yeah. for people people need to have a re the, the recovery of what is a, a tradition that belongs to them Yep. And and there are simple chant masses out there, even just the mass, the missile tones in the mass in the in the missile, yep. which are basically mass 18, mass 15 from a yep. chant mass. Exactly. Even they are very accessible for people. Yeah. Um so I, I we've think it's just a matter of um of people realizing that this is our tradition and yes. we can actually sing this and this would actually yeah. beautiful be beautiful yeah. to close yeah. the liturgy. I think it's yeah. about educating yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to the use of good contemporary compositions, but but we can't survive purely on a diet of music that was written post 1970. Exactly. And regrettably, there are many parishes that do uh, that, that 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 don't give any expression to the fact that there's a pre-existing corpus of liturgical music 
um, that sort of goes back a couple of thousand years. Exactly. And I just wanted to touch on this. Uh, speaking about how we're, we're working on the long-term project of, uh, of um, sacralizing the liturgy and its music and uh, yeah. its rituals, could, uh, there are many people that say uh, uh, perhaps the new rite doesn't command as much reverence as you would if you went to the to the um, to the 1962 missile. Uh, let's yeah. say with the music and the other components, yeah. that may be a fact as to why people are not uh, 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 treating it very casually or not yeah. seeing it as yeah. a sacred place, as you mentioned. Well, uh, I. I think it all comes down to the way in which the liturgy is done. And as you know, um, the experience of a solemn mass at the cathedral uh, at Parramatta, for instance, or St Mary's Cathedral on a Sunday morning at half past 10, their solemn mass, can be a very uplifting and a very reverent uh, experience. So it's all got to do with those who have the carriage of the actual liturgy itself. And as I was saying to the clergy in Perth, you know, there are some priests around, unfortunately, who think that the celebration at Mass is some form of religious karaoke, um, where they're there to sort of entertain everybody for an hour. Yep. Uh, that isn't what it is. Uh, it never was. And, um, you know, I challenge a number of clergy to look at the way in which they preside over liturgical celebrations because it's not a matter of investing your personality, no matter how smart or funny or entertaining you might be. That is not what the liturgy is about. The liturgy is about the worship of God, the point of intersection between the believer and the almighty, which in our case is mediated by the person of Jesus Christ through the Eucharistic offering. It's a very serious business here. It's not something to be treated lightly. Now, people who are devoted to the celebration of the 1962 missile understand that fact and the liturgy itself basically makes you realize that you're being taken to another place that it is not something that is mendacious or pedestrian but i'm here to defend the reform right by saying the reform right can do that too if those who are enacting it have proper formation and understand what they're doing and don't trivialise the celebration of the liturgy. And unfortunately, people, some clergy, regrettably, I think, do trivialise the liturgy because they think mistakenly that what you have to do is reduce liturgical celebrations down to the lowest common denominator so that it makes people feel comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Well, liturgy is not about being comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most comfortable experience. <laughs> no, no, liturgy is meant to lead us yeah. into an encounter with the living God. Liturgy is meant to lift us up. It's not meant to be like a trip to the supermarket. Exactly. So the religion is, has to have its own unique identity, which which yeah. brings us up to heaven. Um, and yes. Yeah. 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 It's, a, so, it's, it's a foretaste of what should be our experience in eternity. And that is why the Eastern liturgies are so magnificent, because when you go to, um, you know, a liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, it is highly exotic and beyond the ordinary. Well, that's because it's basically you're getting a glimpse of heaven through the celebration of the sacred liturgy. That's, that's really how the Orthodox would see it, that you're given an opportunity to have a little glimpse you know, 
exactly. into the glory of what heaven is meant to be. Now, that should also be our experience in the Roman Rite, but too often or not, of course, it's not. Um, now, look, I, we could, I could sit here and 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 you know, land blast, um, you know, uh, people for their irresponsibility. I don't blame anybody. What I blame is the fact that proper formation and catechesis was never done. Exactly, exactly. And I've been harbouring this, the, the labouring this point for years. So, so in many cases, it's not actually, I mean, I mean we, we can sit down and play the game and we, many, I think, young people do uh, <laughs> who have that knowledge and we all pinpoint and this is wrong, music could be better. But yeah. really, it all comes down to education. Many yeah. people in the church, many people running parish, don't have this knowledge. And I think formation and catechesis is, is the solution, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, uh, that's why I say I don't blame, you know, I'm not pointing sticks at people. You, you can't blame people for the fact that they were not adequately trained and formed at the time. Mm -hmm. We live, we live, unfortunately, with the consequences of a failure by those who should have had responsibility for the liturgical, the, the, the renewal through the liturgical reform, and they were just simply overwhelmed. Well, we're now playing catch-up. Um, but as I said, I see signs that we're starting to shift. To a better place. What are these signs, Father? The signs are that I think particularly the younger generation of clergy who are now being ordained are much better formed and trained than perhaps those who went through the seminaries in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, they have a much better understanding of, of uh, the liturgy and of the way in which the liturgy should be celebrated. Now, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, I'm not blowing my own trumpet like some of the people in the background of your background painting, <laughs> but um, I obviously have had a part to play in that because I've been lecturing seminarians now for a long time. And... Um, uh, I say these things in my lectures and it resonates with the generations of, of seminarians who are going through the process of leading to ordination. Okay. So I see, yeah, but there's a long way to go because you see, George, culture is very powerful and it's very difficult to change culture. Um, once a culture becomes ingrained, it's very difficult to change a culture. Mm. Exactly, exactly. And, and so what we're doing is that we're at the beginning of a process where we have to basically go back and say, well, look, a lot of things we got right, but there are also a whole lot of things that we really didn't get right. And what we've got to do is that we've got to go through a corrective. Excellent. And I, look, I think there's a lot of optimism from the lay side of things. You know, there's great oh, yeah, there coming through yeah. already. A lot of lay people have actually, including myself, uh, taken the steps to educate themselves about the Second Vatican Council, about the history of liturgy, uh, about the theology of the liturgy, um, and catechize themselves. And uh, and actually uh, taking steps to to get involved yeah. in their parishes, I, I see that all around me, especially yeah. of my yeah. generation and many yeah. older. Yeah, and, no, and it's and it's good, but yeah. you know, one of the things that this needs to be done carefully, um, you know, and we need to do it in a way where we don't where we don't sort of um, you, you know, where we don't tip hot coals on people. Uh, we've got to gently lead people to say, well, yeah, I know this is the way that, you know, you thought things should be done, but actually 
it isn't and we need to do something else. Excellent. Now I'll ask you this, um, what's your, what's your uh, view or what's, uh, how do you see the role of both um, the 1962 missile and the 1969 uh, working together for the future, possibly? Sure, sure. Well, as you'd be aware, um, there's been some changes to the, the availability of, of the missile of 1962 in recent times. Um, and I think, I think the problem was, and I say this with the greatest amount of charity, I think there were some people who were devoted to the missile of 1962 who were using it as a tool in order to um, pursue other agenda. Now, I have the deepest respect for people who feel that they can pray better and that their encounter with God in terms of prayer and liturgy and sacramentally is better sustained by attending the 1962 missile. I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have an issue with that. The, regrettably, um, as I said, I think in some parts of the Catholic world, and I'm not talking about here in Australia as such, but I think in other parts of the Catholic world, I think people use the liberalisation of the use of the 1962 missile by Pope John Paul II, Benedict XVI, in order to actually um, basically, I guess to put it bluntly, there were groups of clergy and people who thought, well, we can pretend that the Second Vatican Council never happened. Yeah. Well, so we, can, we can construct our own version of Catholicism as if 1962 to 1965 never occurred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely and, wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think either we respect the authority of the Pope and the bishops because that's part of the discipline of being a Catholic, or we don't. And I think, unfortunately, some people took that view that we can just reconstruct a, a church that existed before 1962 yeah. and pretend that nothing ever happened. Yeah, but the vast and, majority and that, of people... Yeah. Who, who attend both and like to harmonise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, doing so for people, people who for authentic reasons find that by going to a celebration of Mass, say, at Lewisham here in Sydney, Big shout um, out yeah, um, find that that provides a level of comfort and sustains and nourishes them, I, I, don't, I don't have an issue with that. That's but... Nice. I do have an issue with those people who've used the liberalisation of the use of the 1962 missile to pursue other agenda, which I think is mm -hmm. is against the Pope and the bishops and the authority of the church. And I do have a problem with that, a yeah. serious problem with mm -hmm. that. Because so, that's really, in effect, being seditious in my view. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And... Um... So, look, I mean, it's great. We can travel with both forms of Rome, right? And there's other uh, Latin liturgies, such as the Dominican Rite, the um, yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. other liturgies that we can also engage yeah. in. And the Eastern Rites, don't forget the Eastern Rites. Oh, I don't uh, forget but, the Eastern But let's go into some three practical tools. How can yeah. your average listener who's in a parish today, uh, wherever they are in the world or in the Parramatta Diocese or the Sydney Diocese or anywhere around Australia, listening here today that wants to uh, heed the authentic call of Sacrosanctum Concilium at the Second Vatican Council, how sure. can they take action? What are some three practical tools? Right. Well, first practical, right. first practical tool is to do serious preparation before coming to Mass. Mm -hmm. I.e., before you come to Mass, read the readings at Mass at home either on Saturday night or before you come to Mass on Sunday. In other words, give yourself time to actually already know what is going to be proclaimed liturgically. That's the first thing. 
The second practical tool is be engaged in the liturgy. Don't push the mute button on yourself when you go into Mass. Respond. Respond to the responses and the acclamations as is required of you in order to fulfil your baptismal responsibility. And the third practical tool is to say, when you have been nourished by the sacramental body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion, it calls then for you, as I was talking earlier, about this whole question of lex vivendi. Your participation in the sacraments of the church should lead you to a more engaged life in the world in terms of prosecuting your Christian identity. In other words, it should give you courage to maintain your Christian identity in what is often an indifferent or hostile environment. Excellent, excellent. And uh, and for, for the small things like music or getting involved as a server. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. if you feel that you want to assist liturgically and you've got musical skills or you can come and assist in terms of, you know, a fun form of liturgical ministry, well, then go and speak to the parish priest and offer yourself for that ministry. Because all you're going to do is help enhance the experience of worship for the people of God who've assembled. And that's a good thing. It'll be a blessing for you and it'll be a blessing for them. Excellent. And uh, how would you summarise to end it this way? Uh, the Second Vatican Council called for a participatio actuosa, the actual participation. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, what is it in your words? What is it actually sure. Act, sure. actively? Particip participation can take a number of forms. It can be a participation by responding verbally. It can be participation by being silent and being observing. It doesn't mean that everybody has to be doing everything, but it means that we need to take a broader view of what active participation is. And that means being reflective, saying the parts of the mass that quite properly belong to you, and also being an observer of the ritual action to lead you deeper into the mystery of what is taking place. And that's what I understand by full conscious and active participation. And does the interior uh, participation take precedence over the exterior, such as singing or how? No, I think, I think they should be balanced. Mm -hmm. I yep. think one doesn't take preference over the other. I think you've got to find the balance between the two. That's how exactly. I think it works. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. thank you. What's your final message to our listeners here today who want to take action in this area? Um, I think people need to go back and reread the documents. Um, uh, I think, and, and also understand the history of the liturgical, um, the liturgical history of the Catholic Church, which is very rich. And there are quite a number of books out there that will assist people to do that. Um, knowing where you've come from explains why you are where you are at the present. And uh, our history, which is a 2,000-year tradition, is very important for people to know and be informed about. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much okay. for having me today, Father yes. Peter. That's all right, George. Just, uh, thank you very much for asking me to be on your program, and um, I've enjoyed speaking with you. Excellent. If you could leave us uh, with your blessing. Sure. Well, let us pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts at The Catholic Toolbox or go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. Till next week, God bless, take care and take action.
In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.